Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovation in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to another episode of Need to Know. I'm your host, John Molusky. In this episode, we'll turn our attention to China, where recent developments include protests over COVID policy, a government reaction to those demonstrations, and a meeting between President Xi and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. My guest is our top man on the China beach, the director of the Wilson Center's Kissinger Institute on China and the United States, Robert Daly. Robert, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. So let's begin with the most recent development. As we're sitting here recording this episode of Need to Know, President Xi is in Saudi Arabia, where the the red carpet was rolled out for his arrival. Uh, What do we need to know about China's foray into the Middle East? Well, first, I've been struck that there's been relatively little reporting about this, and journalists are asking relatively few questions. And that points to job one, which is paying attention to Chinese Middle East relations. Under Xi Jinping, uh, China has moved out through the Belt and Road Initiative, other initiatives, lending, diplomacy. And there's an awful lot of scholarship in Washington and in the United States on China in Africa, China in Latin America, uh, China in uh, Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia. But there's been almost nothing on China and the Middle East. And this is now a secondary uh, priority, but a growing priority for China. Because the goal of China's Belt and Road Initiative diplomacy is to create a China-centric Afro-Eurasia. And what region lies at the hinge of Africa and Eurasia? It is the Middle East. China is also now the single biggest customer uh, for oil from the region. They they buy more from Saudi Arabia now than, than we do, and they buy more than they buy from Russia. They also buy Iranian oil. Uh, China increasingly also sells uh, both technology, Huawei 5G technology, the Saudis just bought some while, while she was in town. They also sell weapons uh, to the Middle East. Like us, China armed both sides of the Iran-Iraq war. They've long had a, a scientific and uh, arms relationship with Israel. And China manages to have good relations in the region with Saudi Arabia and Iran and Egypt and Israel and Syria, Syria and, and practically everywhere else. And they've been able to do this because it's largely transactional. It's about buying and selling, unencumbered by history, unencumbered by choosing sides, and so far, unstymied by China's siding with Sunnis or Shias or anything of that kind. Yeah, so so about that, you know, in a, in a region that is plagued by uh, ancient rivalries that just seem to ne- be never ending, China walking in with a clean slate? China's walking in with a relatively clean slate. The Middle East really wasn't on China's conceptual horizons until recently. China, of course, uh, very inward for a long period after the People's Republic was uh, 
established in 1949. It was a revolutionary state. It was a desperately poor inward state without a lot of trade or diplomacy. And since China started moving out into the world in the late 70s and 80s, uh, it has primarily been dealing with developed nations that brought capital or expertise or technology to China. Only in the past you know, 10 or so years has China been moving out into the global south or areas that are not on China's periphery. And in the Middle East, it sees an opportunity uh, because of the complexity of our relationship in the area and because of dissatisfaction with the relationship with the United States, even among uh, nations to which we're as close as Saudi Arabia. That's a conflicted relationship, obviously. China sees uh, an opportunity to uh, advance some of its own interests, get some more oil, which it badly needs, uh, and to show that Xi Jinping uh, is a global leader and that China is a shaper of global order. So this is sort of easy pickings. Because there's no historical baggage, she can go in. He doesn't preach as we do. We, we, we preach to almost everybody in the Middle East about something, right? Yes. No matter how close we are to them. China does none of that. Uh, it's cash on the barrel head deals. It's non-interference in internal affairs. Uh, if MBS ordered the murder of Khashoggi, that's uh, none of Xi Jinping's business. Mm-hmm. And the Saudis know that it's not and that he's not going to raise it. And so this puts them in a position to hedge between the two superpowers, which is what an awful lot of countries do. They, they're they sending a message to the United States that, you know, where you, you think of us as broadly in a, your sphere of influence, and we're not. There are other spheres. We are a sphere unto ourselves, and we can pick and choose. So other than a deal to purchase more oil, do you anticipate anything else of substance emerging from this visit? Uh, there's Well, what she would very much like is for Saudi Arabia to purchase some of that oil in the Chinese currency, in the yuan or the RMB. Russia is now uh, doing purchases in the RMB, and China is very keen to further internationalize their currency, to gradually challenge and offer an alternative to US dollar dominance. But they don't want to do a free float of the RMB. They they don't want the exchange rate to be market determined because that means that the Communist Party loses control. And that is something up with which they will not put. So what they're finding is that if because they're a major buyer, they can get uh, Russia, they can get maybe the Saudis to pay in RMB. And that's something that Xi Jinping would like very, very much. He's also getting a lot of warm, fuzzy footage to send back to Chinese media. Yeah. yeah. So... Look, in a self-centered world or in a world of uh, a great power competition, it's always sort of about the other guy, too. Yep. Uh, but from the U.S. perspective, is is that you know too self-centered or is there an element of this that is about the United States, either directly or indirectly? Well, th- there's certainly an element that is about the United States. Uh, China wants to challenge the United States as the primary architect of global and regional orders. That's not surprising. That's something that we know about. Uh, That's not something that is inherently nefarious. There are elements of it about which we are rightly deeply concerned. But as China likes to point out, it is nowhere written that we get to have this status and only we get to have it for all eternity. So this is a challenge that we we know is coming. Certainly, China has a right to have uh, a relationship with Saudi Arabia or anybody else it wants to have a relationship with. So China is challenging us on the global order side. The Saudis are challenging us, letting us know that they have other alternatives for markets, uh, for sources of weapons. They, they will be purchasing weapons from China as well. And so they are going to be balancing. So this is in part about us. It is not all about us. 
uh, and to say it's not it's not something that's alarming. It is something that we need to go to school on and start thinking about. So one of my questions is how many people do we have at the State Department or DOD who are both Sinologists and Arabists? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm betting you can count them on one hand. No. And so this, this is a time for us to notice. It's nothing to panic about, but it is time for us to, you know, say, go to school and, and get trained the personnel we need. Yeah, China clearly has thrown down the gauntlet, and it's not a new development, and we need to keep moving forward. Uh, Moving backward, though, to news of a previous week before President Xi left China for Saudi Arabia, uh, the seeming semi-backdown on the COVID zero policy. uh, How do you interpret what the government's response has been to the protests? Well, uh, it's a little bit difficult to know precisely how much to link the protests that happened about two weeks ago, two weeks, they began two weeks ago, uh, and they only lasted two days. I want to note that for our listeners. There are a lot of people writing as though these are going on, as though this is the white paper revolution or the white paper movement. It is neither of those things. This was the white paper weekend. Yeah. lasted from Friday night to Sunday night. And, and, and did they, Robert, did they end voluntarily or did they end because the government clamped down? They ended because the government clamped down. And the government clamped down first uh, to make sure that the protests would stop. And then the government, in a way, caught a break because immediately Jiang Zemin, the former leader of China, died. And there is a tradition in China of people going out to memorialize uh, dead leaders that they think are inadequately memorialized by the current leaders. Mm -hmm. So some people might have gone onto the street because of Jiang Zemin. Uh, the, The protests, the white paper protests, which were obviously not about Jiang Zemin, could have had a boost because of that, except that the police were already out in force. So uh, nothing happened. But this was never a revolution. It was misreported and mischaracterized in the United States. It's true that an awful lot of the Chinese yelled, we don't want COVID testing, we want freedom. When they said freedom, what they meant was the kind of freedom of movement that we had before COVID. They meant we want to go to restaurants, we want to go shopping, we want to travel abroad, we want to visit our parents and friends. It wasn't, we want democracy, we want freedom. These were not the slogans of the Tiananmen movement in 1989. This is not to belittle the protesters who were brave, understandable, and in my view, correct. Uh, But you really did see in our coverage of this a deep desire on America's part for it to be true, right? That a this wishful was the thinking. moment. Wishful There's thinking. a lot of wishful yeah. thinking. So did Xi Jinping relax the zero COVID uh, policies because of the protests? Actually, uh, an interest in relaxing and changing gradually had been signaled and, and, and really announced before the protests. So it was a direction they were taking anyway, primarily for economic reasons. The costs were too great. Uh, But I do think that the protests almost certainly uh, accelerated that. And so I think that there was the the slowdown, I'm I'm sorry, that the uh, cancellation of the zero COVID policies, you know, having to have a a code on your phone to go everywhere, constant testing, that was going to draw down anyway. But I think the protesters speeded that up. So those who are guilty of wishful thinking, is it also wishful thinking to, to think that maybe the Chinese government is more sensitive to protests than previously thought. I would say that that is wishful thinking, or if, if they're sensitive, they're sensitive in that they want to clamp down on them even more fast quickly yeah. than they have in the past. What the government doesn't want to do is send the message that demonstrating works. 
that's the last thing that they want. That said, though, Xi Jinping's greatest concern, I'm quite certain, uh, knowing as he does the history of his party, when there are protests like this, the protesters per se don't worry Xi Jinping. The Communist Party's always know how to deal with disaffected intellectuals. They don't particularly fear them. What he fears is other factions emerging within the Communist Party that use the disaffection that is clear on the streets of Beijing and Shanghai to challenge Xi Jinping's leadership. That's what Xi Jinping worries about most. I suspect that we've seen, you know, barring, you know, black swans, things happening in China that could easily happen tomorrow. I think that they've probably taken the wind out of the sails of the white paper movement and that people will now use their expanded freedom to enjoy themselves and to see their friends and to see movies. So the, the, the counterintuitive aspect of this, when you saw that initial coverage, some people raised the specter of whether this was Xi's power lessening and opening the door for those who might be opponents of Xi or or challengers of Xi. Uh, it sounds like maybe the uh, weekend long response uh, turns this into a, a, a strengthening of Xi's position. It could be. He'll be that. I mean, he's already a pretty vigilant, uh, pretty wary guy. Uh, but coming as it did on the heels of the 20th Party Congress, which was supposed to be celebratory for Xi Jinping, I'm sure that this confirmed his already rather strong suspicions about the places from which trouble might emerge. And he will be extra careful you know, now. So in the spirit of the, the need to know concept, and, and particularly for those people working or serving on Capitol Hill, uh, what should they believe or think about President Xi's stability standing, uh, should they should they in any way decide that there may be an opening for change? Or are we really talking about what we've been talking about for some time now, president for life? Yeah, I, th I think it's, it's still president for life. This was overplayed. People wanted to say these are the biggest national protests, you know, since Tiananmen Square. That implies a comparability between the Tiananmen movement and this, and and there really is none, you know. If and and obviously I'm just making this up, you know. If Donald Trump is uh, the first O blood type president since Abraham Lincoln, that doesn't mean that there's meaningful comparability between Abraham Lincoln and Donald Trump, right? We're seizing on this. So no, she is still, I think, quite firmly in control. There is widespread but I think low-level dissatisfaction with aspects of China's experience over the past few years. And uh, as I've said several times before, I think that many Chinese who support Xi Jinping because they approve of the anti-corruption campaign, they like the low body count during COVID, they like his nationalism, his strength, and China's increased uh, sort of global throw weight. That doesn't mean they understand and support the direction she is taking the country in mm -hmm. toward greater inwardness, surveillance, isolation, techno totalitarianism. I don't believe that most of the young urbanites in China support that. So there are going to be signs of a growing gap between support for Xi Jinping as a strong leader and non-support for his more repressive inward direction. I think that those fissures are going to grow. The white paper uh, weekend was an Im indication of that, but we're at nothing like a revolution or a collapse. We are probably looking at a long muddle, as most things tend to be, in which a growing number of people are dissatisfied, but they see no alternative to Xi Jinping and the Communist Party.
before I let you go, Robert, two other things I want to ask you about. It, one is an update on where China is on Putin, Russia, and Ukraine. Well, China, of course, still claims to be neutral. Uh, and the rest of the world does not uh, buy this. Uh, they have clearly sided in a limited way with Russia. Uh, but they are siding with Russia, not against Ukraine, with which is, China has had good relations. They are siding with Russia against what they see as a U.S. and NATO-led, highly militarized and aggressive uh, world order, especially in Eurasia. Uh, Xi Jinping has spoken uh, against the use of battlefield nuclear weapons when the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz was uh, in Beijing a few weeks ago. Uh, he and Xi Jinping made statements to that effect. I think that was helpful. I think it was you know, helpful to have that statement on the record. Uh, but the line in China is still that this is the fault of the United States and NATO, that Russia's hand was forced by an implied or occasional, however we should describe it, you know, flirting with the idea of bringing Ukraine into NATO or at least closer to the fold. So that's that's the Chinese line that, that we really started this and that Russia's security concerns are understandable. And and the final thought is taking the temperature of of US China relations. You know, we've seen a little more communication and maybe a lessening of the the harsher rhetoric. Where do we stand right now? Well, I think that the, I expect that that lessening of the harsher rhetoric uh will probably last five to seven minutes in, in political time. <laughs> now, the, the Biden administration itself has not engaged in you know harsh rhetoric of the Trump administration sort. I think that they have been measured and 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 wise uh you know in their approach. But China still hears a lot of this rhetoric from the media, uh from Capitol Hill. But for example, uh we have now agreed for the first time that and we have passed this um, in the new military budget. That not only will we sell weapons to Taiwan, we are now going to buy weapons for Taiwan. We are funding them and giving them to them. That is a major new change uh, that China is going to respond to very strongly. If Kevin McCarthy becomes the Speaker of the House and if he fulfills his promise to visit Taiwan, that will be another major irritant. So I think it is good that the two sides at the leadership level are trying to bring the temperature down a little bit. But the calendar indicates that that isn't likely to last. And while they were in Bali and when they met, while again, they, they were clearly trying to lower the temperature, there was no evidence that either she or Biden was reconsidering any of his beliefs about the other, any of his goals, any of his perceptions about intention or capability. So there was no real reconsideration there. There was just a calming of nerves, which is a very good thing. Uh, but I see little reason to think that it's likely to last. Yeah, baby steps. Yep. Well, better, better than none. Right. Uh, but before we close, uh, uh, speaking of the Kissinger Institute, uh, anything you have out there now or coming up that you want to plug? Yes, there is something that I want to plug. Uh, I thought there might connection be. connection <laughs> with the, uh, Xi Jinping's uh, visit to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Lucille Greer, uh, who was here as a Schwartzman Fellow at Wilson for two years and is now at the Department of Defense, has a new study out called Bridging the Gulf, which we put up in PDF form yesterday. And this is a case study of China's relations with Saudi Arabia and Iran, sort of side-by-side -side form. And in typical Wilson fashion, it looks not only at the current state of play, but it gives you history and culture and the way that these regions and countries approach each other conceptually. There's very little like this out there. It's free, uh, and it's on the, uh, the Wilson website. 
Bridging the Gulf by Lucille Greer. I encourage you to take a look. Excellent. Thanks, Robert. And, and you know, I, I think it's important to know that thing you said, it's free. We're not selling anything here. The Wilson Center does its work for the public good, and it's all available. You can agree or disagree, but it, there are analysis is available to you. Robert, thanks again. Always great to speak with you. Thanks, John. And to you, our listeners, we thank you for joining us on the Need to Know podcast and uh, encourage you to visit wilsoncenter.org to see not only the work of Robert and the Kissinger Institute, but all kinds of useful information. We thank you for your time and interest, and we want to wish you and your families a most happy and healthy holiday season. We will see you again in the new year.